you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 Kai FM. Uh, we're chatting today with a journalist who will offer a slightly different opinion as he is an independent, independent and freelance journalist and has an investigative mindset as well. Kieran Ryan, good afternoon. Welcome to the show. I trust you're well. I am Rob, and you too, I hope. Uh, absolutely. You're always good and enjoying, enjoying the end of your break, in the end of your break, and I'm sure you are too. Yeah, there's a lot to consider, you know, when you cast your mind back. Uh, so much happened this last year. I don't believe that we crammed in as much as we did into this last 12 months, but we certainly got some interesting <laughs> things to go over today. Oh, we definitely do indeed. I, I, I totally agree with you. It has been an incredibly interesting year on, on absolutely many fronts. Now, I know we're, we're enjoying our, our end of year festivities and some of us are enjoying a 13th check. However, we know for sure that ANC staff once again have not been paid. What's up with that? It's a very interesting thing. The, the, the ANC, they're actually, the staff were going on, on strike where well, they did for a period of time uh, a few weeks back because they hadn't been paid. The ANC apparently owes them about 200 million in, in back pay. And what appears to have happened is the, the coffers are running dry. And I think this is really a reflection of the ANC's performance in the last election. Um, not only that, but R.W. Johnson put up a story on Politics Web, which I think summarizes this quite well, where you had this kind of nexus between the ANC, the political leaders, and the rainmakers, the money people below them. And these, of course, would be people who occupy positions of power and influence and who write the checks in state-owned companies like ESCOM. ESCOM has certainly um, uh, gone a long way to cleaning up the mess there, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. But think of all these other state-owned companies that are, that are out there where cards have been deployed. And, of course, they have been a huge source of funding for the ANC over the years. Now, uh, that funding has dried up because a lot of these state-owned companies are pretty much bankrupt. And we know this because the Auditor General has repeatedly reminded of this when uh, she, she now, who brings out her reports every now and again. And so that is dried up, plus all the, a lot of the corporate sponsorship that happened before. These are tight times, you know, COVID, uh, people are not spending like they were before. And that has left the ANC in a very, very tricky position. Uh, they they now are scrambling to find this 200 million that they owe their staff. Even if they pay them now, they're going to be left in exactly the same position. They're going to have to run around and and find another 200 million within the next three months. It's uh, I think a pretty serious problem. Indeed, it is. I mean, how many gala dinners can can they host where they can sell tickets next to next to our president Ramaphosa for 1.2 billion <laughs> rand? Or if you if you even lucky, you can sit next to uh, Ace Magashule, and I'm sure it'll be half the price, discount, 50% off. So you can get that one for 600,000. But yeah, it does seem like interesting times. I mean, they, they do come across as rather desperate. I mean, how, how do political parties uh, raise money traditionally? If, how do the other parties do it, like the DA and, and so on? You know, I'm, I'm not an expert in that. I haven't looked in, into that into too much detail, but, uh, from what I understand, it's, you know, they, they go knocking on doors like everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. they, we, uh, 
the DA has gone knocking on corporate doors and they would have some very, very uh, prominent and high-profile private donors as well. And the smaller parties are not getting their love and attention that they feel. I, I, I don't know much more about it than that, but I... I know that this is how the ANC... Look, when the ANC came back from exile back in 1994, this this is one of the big problems that they've they faced. I know that they were looking at all sorts of things. Uh, they were looking at, uh, for example, you know, the Battle King land on which all the platinum deposits lie. They thought, you know, that, that you know looks like it's unoccupied. <laughs> I think we'll just move in and take that because it's very far from unoccupied. It does have an owner, and the Battle King bought that land legitimately back in the 1800s when they sent the uh, the young men from the, the tribe down to work in the diamond mines in Kimberley. So they've had this ongoing problem. The During the period when the economy was doing very well, the ANC was flush. This was, you know, the, the heyday of uh, the economic boom was when Trevor Manuel was finance minister and Tabo Mbeki was president. You know, back in the uh, in the 2000s, before the big crash came, 2009, they were they were flush. They had lots of money, but then the Zuma era came, and of course it was the Guptas. They were the rainmakers then, and uh, we all know how that ended. You know that there is now a red notice out from Interpol uh, to get the, the Guptas back here. It's just interesting when you when you consider just looking back on this year, all of the noise about this, the the Interpol. Red notices, in other words, arrest warrants put out for the Guptas, all of the activities that have gone at the Zondo, and, and yet no high-profile uh, ANC person yet behind bars. Uh, that said, uh, Ace Makhachula's trial is coming up in February, so you know we may have a bit more to report on then. Definitely, and that should be quite an interesting time indeed. I'm sure he will uh, reveal some inner inner workings there and uncover some major skeletons in a lot of closets. Um, unlike Zuma's book, which promised promised to do that, but uh, I don't believe it has. Not that I've read it. And I can honestly say I don't know anyone. I, I haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I don't think. I bet I, it's a page I, stopper rather than a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> a page stopper, indeed, which will become a doorstop, I'm sure. <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, but you know, Kieran, what what does surprise me is that you know all political parties do do receive an allocation from, from the IEC and that, that money or that money is supposed to be to drive part their or run their party, run their, their, their political campaigns, pay their staff and, and continue, uh, with uh, democracy and, and related, related events and so on. They, and it, that, that amount and that allocation is based on the number of seats they hold either in a municipal region or within parliament, the ANC must be receiving a significant amount from from the from the ISC, which that which brings to mind why are they bankrupt? It really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. You're right. I mean, uh, you reminded me there. The ISC does give an allocation to the parties uh, based on the number of seats that you've got, and of course. The, the the biggest party, but I, I mean, I guess it's it's you know. So why are they bankrupt? Well, they um, bigger expenses. It's uh, harder to get rid of people. This is one of the things that has been brought up. You know, even the, the staff they've got in the Tuli House you can't just get rid of them. Uh, you've got to go through all sorts of processes. We've got the labour laws and, and that sort of thing. So 
they're unable to cut their cloth to fit their budget, so to speak. I'm probably, you know, murdering, uh, you know, a fairly good <laughs> saying there. But I don't think they, um, just look at the, the, the way that the, the country's been run, the way the budget's been run. I don't think the party uh, budget is going to be any, any better condition. Which, which is a terrifying thought indeed. I mean, if they, if they can't run their party correctly and, and keep finances uh, above board and, and zero rated and, and you know, at least stay, stay in, the, in the green, then how can they run a country? <laughs> I suppose we don't need to look very far to, to understand that that same sort of thinking is carried right throughout, as you correctly said, through our state-owned entities, which is oh, which is an absolute, absolute terrifying thought as well. If you can't manage your own party, which is really a small business, then how do you manage the, the, the big country at large? Yeah, terrifying times indeed, Kieran. You know, but that's, it's not the only terrifying story, is it? I mean, there's a lot going on across our border in, in Zimbabwe and, and so on with their economic zone there. You want to tell us a bit more about that? I don't think many people are actually even aware of this. Yeah, well, one of the interesting comparisons that is often made with the ANC, you know, is the zone of peification. I think is the word that they've used of the ANC. In, in other words, 30 years in power, almost 30 years in power, does it become like ZANU-PF where it's unable to relinquish, it's unable to acknowledge democratic realities, it's unable to acknowledge the, the, the vote of the people, and does it cling on to any kind of devious or even military means possible? I, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think the, the, the military is is not as prominent in South Africa, and certainly in terms of the leadership as it is in Zimbabwe. But, I mean, I think there are interesting things happening across our border. And one of the things that happened just before Christmas was there seems to be a decoupling. I mean, Zimbabwe was our closest ally back in the days when the, you know, the, the Bush War and the, not, not really the, the Rhodesian Bush War, but the South African Bush War. Zimbabwe was a very, very close ally. And that seems to be decoupling, and I think we're entering into a period now of almost like a soft trade war. Uh, call it a cold war with Zimbabwe. And the first sign of that was when Home Affairs did not renew the Zimbabwe exemption permits. Now, just to a little bit of background there, these permits were introduced back in 2009, about 12 years ago, to basically legitimize the, the, the many Zimbabweans that were here illegally. They had crossed the river. They somehow got into the country. And uh, so there's about 250,000 of them, these permits that were issued by Home Affairs. They lasted three years, and every three years they've been replaced by a newer iteration of them. The latest one of them is called the Zimbabwe uh, Exemption Permit. That expires on the 31st of December, which is two days away from now. And the Department of Home Affairs, they were expected to renew this or announce some new scheme, but they didn't. So they've left, uh, you know, these hundreds of thousands of Zimbabweans who are here in a state of limbo. And where police can stop them, they can get arrested. And the, the there was a directive issued which said that employers may not employ people who are who do not have the correct visas. So what they're doing is they're telling these Zimbabweans, you've got to go and apply for uh, the, the, the visa that everybody else is here, in other words, a normal working visa. But, of course, you can't do that because you've got to get police clearance in your home country, which means you've got to go home. That takes six weeks. You've got to do the whole quarantining thing. In, in other words, it was it was set up to be a, a train smash. And I, I'm, I'm hearing from 
my contacts in, in Zimbabwe and here in South Africa, the Zimbabwean community here, that there's now a bill about to be floated before the Zimbabwean parliament where they want to start introducing a tax on South African planes overflying Zimbabwe airspace both in and out. That's a pretty dramatic move, you know, when they start doing that because if you're now going to start flying around Zimbabwe to, to save money, well, you're not going to save money because, um, you know, you're just going to burn more fuel. But it just tells us that things are getting a little bit testy. Why is the Department of Home Affairs doing this? I, I think one of the reasons is that they've realized that with the South African community uh, or the elements of the South African community, uh, illegal immigration is a hot button. And it's been made a hot button by Herman Mashaba, Action SA, and, and a few other groups as well. I mean, it's, it's becoming a hot button worldwide. People are saying we... If we're going to have immigration, it's got to be controlled. And we know that there, there are millions of people in South Africa who who don't have uh, visas. They come here on a 30-day visitor's visa and they stay. Um, and I know this because I've spoken to to some people who confided to me. It's just like, how do you how do you get into the country? You know, you're from Malawi or whatever it is. Oh, you just you know you pay. It used to be 50 bucks. Uh, if you're getting on a bus and you're coming from uh, the long way in Malawi to South Africa, you're going through um, three border posts, so you're crossing through Mozambique, through Zimbabwe, and into South Africa. But on each side, there's two sets of immigration officials, so <laughs> you're paying 50 bucks to each of them. So you're paying 300 bucks. I believe that, that fee has now gone up to 100 bucks, so you're paying 600 bucks one way. Um, but, and, and, and I said, and they don't ask to see your visa, you, no, and, and, and even if you've got a valid visa, he says you still pay. That, that's the going rate. So that's how easy it is to get into South Africa, um, to stay here. Um, you're certainly not going to get jobs with a, you know, a mainstream company. Uh, they, they wouldn't, but you know, you, you can disappear into the, the secondary economy. Mm. And that's, that is what they're doing. And there's millions of them here. Absolutely. And that, that places a major strain on, on infrastructure and service delivery as well. So there, there's got to be, we don't even know how many how many illegal immigrants there are in South Africa, but uh, last figures I saw, they were estimated in Gauteng alone, two and a half million, uh, just in Gauteng, which places an incredible strain on the local economy, um, infrastructure, water delivery, sanitation services, and even um, hospitals. Hospitals have to deal with those people, they have to treat them. So... It really is a situation that home affairs needs to get get under control. But uh, is there any any light at the end of the tunnel? Um, well, there's uh, what what is happening is these Zimbabweans they call themselves the Zimbabwean Exemption, Exemption Permit uh, Holders Association. They have now taken the Department of Home Affairs and the Minister of Home Affairs to court. And they are asking for permanent residence because they say the law envisaged at the time that, you know, they having been here now for a period of, all, all of these people who are applying, by the way, would have got the original exemption permit back in 2009. So they've been here for more than 10 years. Um, in most countries in the world, you would say, okay, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna amnesty you or we're gonna grant you permanent residence. Uh, you know, the kids that they, they've intermarried, they've married South Africans, the kids are growing up here in school, you know, you can't all of a sudden say to them, you, you've got to go back. There, there was a case before the, the Gauteng High Court recently where a Zimbabwean married to a Swede were trying to get uh, permanent residence for their 
two-year-old son. And the two-year-old son was declared an undesirable alien. Uh, can you imagine the, I don't know whether it's an attitude or the inhumanity of yeah. saying something like that. An undesirable alien. Well, undesirable. I must admit, yeah. the terrible twos, I, I can relate to that. When my kids were undesirable aliens at two as well. So <laughs> maybe that's what they're you, you mean, But not, not legally speaking. No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely not. But that is a, that is a major concern, you know, and we seem to be seeing more and more and more a greater influx of of people from from surrounding countries into South Africa, and one wonders really if the the if Zimbabwe's economy will act, ever actually rebound at all. Well, th- this is my prediction, and this is my theory that I think it is. And um, one one of the things that I started noticing in the last few months. First of all, there's the, I don't know if you know that there's a Victoria Falls stock exchange. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't got a lot of traction just yet, but there are a few companies who are listed on the stock exchange. The other thing about uh, Victoria Falls, it's, it's, you can almost sort of sever it from the rest of Zimbabwe. And because it's a dollar based economy. So the people who come there are tourists, they bring dollars and they pay, you know, the hotel rates there. You may as well be in, I won't necessarily say London, but you could be in Sandton, certainly, or you could be in Cape Town. Those are the kind of fees that are being charged in these hotels. So it's a dollar based economy in Victoria Falls, whereas the rest of the economy is, uh, you know, it's a mixture of RAND, it's a mixture of the Zim dollar or the, the replacement for the Zim dollar. I think it's called the RTGS. And, Pounds and, and, and other currencies like that. So the other thing about Victoria Falls, it's a special economic zone. So you get certain tax benefits for relocating there. And their ambition is to make it like the Singapore of Southern Africa. Similar things have been tried in, in South Africa, but you just cannot get this through. It's, it's not going to get traction because companies don't want to relocate here. They, they see the labor laws as being a, a huge barrier. Very difficult to fire people. You know, once they're hired, it, it becomes an expense. You've just got to live with it type of thing. Uh, Zimbabwe doesn't have it. Zimbabwe is almost like modeled on the Chinese model where, you know, labor, labor laws are very relaxed. And, and all of this, of course, has been done under the ZANU-PF governments, uh, not under the NDC. I think one of the things, the, the other thing that Zimbabwe is doing is they are certainly looking at compensating farmers who are dispossessed of their land over the last 20, 30 years. And they, there's talk now of setting up a land claims court. So, you know, on the one hand, we in South Africa are talking about introducing uh, expropriation without compensation. Zimbabwe is going the other way. They want to compensate farmers. So a few very interesting signals coming out of Zimbabwe, which I think point towards uh, a change in trajectory. And I think the other thing that they are seriously looking at, um, they see South Africa as a, a, a I don't want to say a dying horse, but uh, they see it on its way down. And they don't want to be coupled to this sinking ship. So they want to sort of float free and introduce tax incentives that would attract South African companies to places like Big Falls and other special economic zones. And there will, there will be others like outside Harare and, and Bulawayo and so on. I think you'll start to see some very interesting developments in the region um, in this coming year. That, that's, <laughs> I must say, that is a rather bizarre turn of events. Yeah, the the big fear or scare scare tactic has been 
South Africa will become the next Zimbabwe. And while well, Zimbabwe seems to be on on the rise now, so we really we really don't know. Will South Africa become that next Zimbabwe? Well, let's let's hope it actually also suffers a an increase and in, in a revival in in its economy. It's 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 fascinating how this all goes through because uh, certain political parties and political leaders, especially Julius Malema, praise Zimbabwe and the and the route that they went on on the radical economic transformation and and land expropriation and so on. I wonder if he's still doing the same and praising them for going back to and reversing the whole decision and compensating the, these farmers and so on. Well, or will he just do the typical politician thing and ignore the facts as, as they go? I think, uh, I, I don't know if, if Malema is, is going to change his tune on that. I think he, he likes the, the way that they went after the white farms. He likes the punitive measures they took against the colonial regime. But there is an element within Zimbabwe, which is, um, Zimbabwe is an interesting country. I mean, that's where I grew up. I, you know, I went to school there. And, it's got one of the best education systems in Africa. So some of the smartest people have come out of Zimbabwe. I was there a couple of years ago in my old school. Um, St. George's College, a plug for St. George's College there in Harare. And they've got this section there where they've got all of these, uh, the alumni. So there's, there's a guy, you know, he's a famous heart surgeon. He's working at the Mayo Clinic in, in the United States. Here's another guy who designs... Uh, racing cars. A third guy builds bridges, you know, some of the largest bridges in the world. So they've got this fantastic alumni who have been through this school, but none of them in South Africa and none of them in Zimbabwe. They've all emigrated. So it's, it's become this kind of nursery where great talent is, is grown and created and nurtured and then is expelled or if not really expelled. Yeah, I guess you could say expelled because they, they don't really uh, they, they don't tend to stay or do well or find opportunities in Zimbabwe. There's a possibility that a good number of these could come back. And a lot of them, of course, are in South Africa. You know, it's, it's reckoned that there could be up to three million Zimbabweans in South Africa. I mean, you, you raise that point about how many, how many illegals are there in South Africa. Um, it's a question I pose. I mean, I think it's closer to 10 million. That's, but it's, wow. it's uh, uh, a gut feel. I mean, if it's three million Zimbabweans, you've got to add in the people from West Africa, the people from Congo. Yeah, and you know, all of these these are not insignificant numbers. Um, you know, a lot of people say that they they, they bring something to the country. They, they certainly do, but you know, they have to be able to live in, in an environment where they're they're tolerated and where they're they're allowed to be authenticated, where they've got the right papers and they're allowed to participate in the economy. And I think a lot of these people have come in here the way I mentioned, you know, there's this Malawian chap, you know, just pay your 50 rand to every border guard you come across, you get in. And I think that's that's got to be looked at quite seriously because the census, by the way, this should be should have been a census in 2021. It didn't happen. The last one was in 2011. The reason for doing that census is that the planners can actually see how many people live here and, and what do we have to plan for in terms of water supply, electricity supply, hospitals, uh, all that kind of thing. If we are underestimating that figure, then our planning is is off the mark, and it's clearly off the mark because you know we, we're running short of everything. That's exactly it, and and, and we definitely are. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, please stay with us because we have some hard pressing questions. When when we return, see you off the break. 
You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. We're chatting today with Kieran Ryan, an independent and freelance journalist, about some pressing issues that have happened throughout this year, 2021. And Kieran, one of those is obviously COVID and the restrictions and the whole story uh, around what's what's happening there. There's been a, a lot of talk and some prominent figures globally are standing up and revealing some rather interesting truths. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what have you uncovered that's most fascinating throughout the year? Well, I'm, I'm busy reading the book, The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert Kennedy Jr. And uh, it, it's a fascinating revelation. Um, if 10% of this is true, you know, we're in real trouble. I think what health authorities around the world are now starting to realize is the world has been held captive to an ugly cartel that brings new uh, meaning to the word regulatory capture. Now, just consider the CDC. That's the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That's the main body that, that Fauci oversees in the United States. It's got 57 patents, and Bill Gates is the largest funder outside of the U.S. government of the CDC. So right, right away, you've got these commercial entanglements at the very, very top of the regulatory bodies that are supposed to oversee this kind of thing. The other thing that Robert Kennedy brings out in this book is, you know, if your job is, and here's the title, you know, the, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, you would think that, you know, serious diseases like this would be on the decline, but they haven't. They've just absolutely skyrocketed under, under Fauci. There's, you know, he was the guy who was there during the time of HIV and AIDS, and he brings out a lot of controversy about his handling of the HIV AIDS crisis as well in this book and but essentially what, what the real criticism of Fauci here is is the, the commercial entanglement entanglements the way that he's allowed these regulatory bodies to be captured by commercial interests like Bill Gates and FDA for example the, the Federal Drug Authority uh, in the United States gets 45% of its funding from pharmaceutical companies now you just imagine if our environmental authorities were to get half of their funding from coal companies in South Africa. <laughs> you wow. can imagine what would happen to the the drift of our regulations. That that is what has happened. This, these are guys are so in bed with the regulators. Just one example of uh, two examples. I want to talk about hydroxychloroquine because that that has been proven to be very effective. Um, but the all of the, the, the World Health Organization, the FDA, the, the CDC, they all came out against hydroxychloroquine in a very, very interesting and sinister way. They, uh, there was a, a study that was published in The Lancet, which is probably the most reputable medical magazine in the world, and the New England uh, Journal of Medicine, uh, which was basically a, a hit piece on hydroxychloroquine. Now, I've had this drug. When, when I was working in West Africa and I got malaria, this is what they give you. It costs nothing, virtually nothing. And it's extremely effective. I, I just remember, you know, feeling pretty sick. 24 hours later, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm relatively fine. I'm a bit weak, but, you know, that's how good this drug is uh, for, for malaria. But um, it's been repurposed. It's, it's what they call off-label use of, of a medicine. So it's not used exactly for the intention it was designed for. They found that it became effective against COVID. Now, lots of countries did studies on this. 
um, you know, before the, the, the shutdown happened. Anyway, the, this, this study that I was talking about in The Lancet um, and the New England Journal of Medicine was based on data which came out of a company based, I think it was in Idaho, which was completely fraudulent. It, it was an absolute fraud that was perpetrated on these magazines, which are highly respected, as I said. And they had to put it, the scientists, the authors of the reports who were using data that was supplied by there was one data supplier who supposedly had access to all of the death rates and all of the case reports from these different hospitals, uh, and they realized they'd been had. And, but Fauci jumped on this, and the CNN and, and, and the mainstream media said, look, hydroxychloroquine, you know, it, it, it doesn't work. It, uh, when in actual fact, the studies prove the exact opposite. It is effective. Um, countries that banned it or that allowed easy access to hydroxychloroquine, like Bangladesh and Turkey, Nigeria, I think even Pakistan and Ukraine, they had minuscule case fatality rates. Countries that restricted restricted use of hydroxychloroquine, like Ireland, Canada, Spain, uh, had very, very high case fatality rates. So right there, you can see what's going on here. Why were they doing this? Because vaccines was the agenda. That's where the real money was to be made. Vaccines were the agenda, and uh, remdesivir, which, remdesivir, I think is how they pronounce it, mm. uh, which is a a therapeutic drug which they were now uh, advocating for the use of, in the treatment of COVID. Money, you know, it, it's become quite obvious, but I think with this book, if, if this guy, Fauci, survives this, uh, I will be surprised. I, either that or he's got to sue the pencil for Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, for defaming him and libeling him because he's done it on every platform that he's given. And... Robert Kennedy Jr. is a trial lawyer. I didn't know this until I read the book. And he took on environmental polluters before. He's, he's got a fabulous track record as a trial lawyer. He's one of the best in the world. So he's not making claims here which are not backed up. And you must just see the sources that are used in this book. It, it is so well referenced. And, and you think you're living in an alternative reality. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're told one thing. But he's been he's been excommunicated from the mainstream media. He's... He's now appearing on podcasts, which I must say, some of these podcasts, like um, I, I, some, I don't know if he's been on Joe Rogan, but he's been on Steve Bannon's War Room. Um, they got more viewers than CNN. You know, but people are going to alternative sources of news these days. And, and well, I must admit, I've also been uh, reading the book, and it is—it's it's an absolute, absolute eye-opener. You literally cannot put it put it down, but you have to because. You have to digest all that all that information that come that comes across in each each page. It's just unbelievable. I think there's over two thousand citations in in that book and references to to actual facts and and study material. So there's 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 no doubt in my mind that that what he says is definitely definitely true. And as you say, if it if it weren't true, then Fauci would definitely be laying laying claims against him, and which he hasn't done. To, to date. We're going to take a quick break, but stay with us as we discuss more of this. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 Guy FM. Kieran, we were chatting there about this fantastic book that's that's out by Robert Kennedy Jr. on, on the Saldabark. And you, you said something there uh, the mainstream media, or just to say the regular legacy media, 
don't seem to be covering it as much as the alternative media. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I mean, this this is phenomenal. Uh, I, I think Robert Kennedy has touched on that in the book too. I mean, this book is an absolute publishing phenomenon. You know, it's the top of the Amazon bestseller list. It hasn't appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, but, uh, and it's, nobody has done a review of it. I'm talking about of the, of the legacy media. They, they, they're sort of pretending it doesn't exist. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how many books have sold, but hundreds of thousands of, of this book have been sold. Uh, the, the cat is definitely out of the bag now. And one of the reasons why you find the media quiet on this, well, we, we go back to our old friend Bill Gates. It seems that, you know, he's not only is he a big funder of uh, pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical regulators, He's also a big funder of media companies. And there's, there's almost this, I, I started to look at, I, I thought, you know, Gates was, was, a, was a quirky, interesting, amazing guy um, until this COVID thing happened. And so what, what is this guy's credentials to going, the guy on TV and telling us, you know, we, this is how we've got to behave during a pandemic. Yes. You know, he, he didn't come with any background in in this area, but all of a sudden he's been quoted and he's been invited to talk on television and radio and so on. Yeah. Not so much now. I, I think that um, people are a little bit wiser to him and they've started to look at you know his financial entanglements with, with all of these different groups. But he's a big media sponsor. And Bill and Melinda Gates are big media sponsors here in South Africa. So you, you, you kind of get this, you, you're, you're in a bubble. You, you're talking to people who don't want to discuss the other side of the, the critics of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or whatever. They, they really don't want to debate this issue. They're prepared to accept government say so. This is what government says, therefore we're going to go along with it. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. I mean, it, um, but however, you, as, as you correctly pointed out there, it's money does talk and money definitely convinces people. And perhaps we should be pushing aside that, that money ability and moving into, more into crypto and, and so on and, and the benefits that, that it holds there. I mean, there's been some amazing developments in, in the crypt, crypto field. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see non-profit organizations actually accepting crypto donations and 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 so on just to as government phases out cash which is can only lead lead one way to to more monitoring what are your thoughts on on that uh, as we're about to wrap up yeah crypto is, is something i've uh, been researching quite intensively for the last number of years um i i, I write at money with crypto quite a lot on the subject and it is something that, you know, when Bitcoin first came about, I, I was reading a little bit about it, but I was put off it by people who seemed to know what they were talking about. Um, and I wish I didn't listen to them and, and bought when I could for about a hundred rand <laughs> or a hundred dollars. Um, but I didn't. And so I, I kind of got, got into a little bit late in the day. But what I, I see happening here, and it's something I've been looking at in the last couple of days, is I think we're starting to see a turn in the interest rate cycle. These massive, massive uh, budgetary allocations that have been made in the United States, one and a half trillion, two trillion dollars, uh, unprecedented in history, those are going to have inflationary consequences. It's going to have inflationary consequences here in South Africa as well. 
And I think you're going to start to see this uh, this war between private and public monies. Private monies being like Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana and, and, and that sort of thing. Public monies being the fiat monies of which we, are, we all have, which is the rand, the dollar, the pound, the euro. So I think that we are we're going to see this this playing out over the next one to two years. I, I would even say in 2022, there's going to be one of the big stories is um, the rise of some very, very new and interesting uh, cryptocurrencies that have features that they allow on anonymity. They don't allow the government to trace you. The governments are trying to introduce their own, by the way. They're called central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. Um, I, I'm a little bit wary of them because... That allows them to basically, you know, put the welfare state on steroids and everybody gets an account and, you know, money just gets deposited there every week. But they track every purchase that you make when they have the potential to. Um, whether they do that or not, I've had debates with people who think that's not realistic, but I, I'm not a great truster in the, the good faith of government. So, yeah, that's one of the stories I think is going to play out this year, private versus public monies. I, I definitely think that that will, will play out. And perhaps we should have a whole segment on on revealing the the good, the bad, and the ugly around around crypto and government's uh, regulation or attempt to to regulate that that entire market. Kieran Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure as as always. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately we don't. Um, so thanks for for your time and and taking taking the day out from your crazy busy in between Christmas and New Year and New Year break. To, to chat to us and, and reveal these things. Thanks, Rob. Have a great New Year's. And, and your listeners too. And, and you too, Kurt. 